Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. It's really hard for me to believe that this is the last episode of the first half of 2022. I don't mean to sound all like hyperbolic or anything, but I kind of feel accomplished, right? I've done two episodes a week for the first 26 weeks or ish of 2022. Okay, I'll pat myself on the back. And for you guys, you've listened to that many, or at least you've listened to several. And I very much appreciate that. I appreciate the feedback, the validation, all of that. I had no intention of this podcast being as successful or as followed as it is, but I am so grateful that it is and really appreciate it. I know that Q3 is especially challenging for those of you in retail, even though Q4 is definitely like the Super Bowl or whatever you want to call it. In Q3, you're having to create your budgets. And I know this year it's just especially hard because there's a lot of uncertainty in the air, especially in tech. Some budgets are being cut while fraud is still growing at a rapid pace and it's changing a lot. So some of the tools that you have now may not be working as well as other ones would, and you may need more resources to help you. So just know that if that's you and you're identifying with this, you are not alone. I have had many conversations with online fraud prevention people and trust and safety people that are very stressed out right now. It's been a crazy couple of years and it is stressful, but we'll get through it. We've been through worse. It always reminds me that I can do a lot. Whether your vertical was hit with a massive amount of sales during COVID or whether you're in event ticketing and travel where it was crickets and a lot of uncertainty, you went through all that. You adapted to that. So you'll adapt to this challenge of the economy and just all the other things going on just as well. And that is, I'm going to just choose to hold on to that Pollyanna belief. (laughs) So today on the episode, I'm going to provide a little bit of a recap from my time at NRF Protect last week in Cleveland. Got to see a few familiar faces and catch up with some people I didn't get to really talk to at the last conference we were all at, as well as I went to a few sessions that were focused on card not present fraud prevention, and I'll share some of the takeaways there. And then there are still two remaining questions from the webinar that I did with Uri Arad at Identic for the Merchant Risk Council two weeks ago. If you are a member of the MRC, you can access that recording in their member resources hub. I answered the majority of the questions that came out of that webinar on last Thursday's episode. The webinar was about first party misuse and how it's expanded far beyond chargebacks. It's also expanded into promo code abuse and refund fraud and loyalty abuse and just so many other ways that the true cardholder or the person who owns the account is still benefiting from your company in a way that is costing your company more money than it should. That's really kind of the bottom line there. So I will answer the two remaining questions there. One is for a BNPL FinTech that works with a number of merchants, and they had a question there. The other one is from a retailer that has had a lot of challenges with freight forwarders. So I'll be answering both of those along with some of the answers that Uri provided as well. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about, and I just worry about this can of worms, but I'm trying to be intentional about it. 
Visa announced some new rules this past week. They had a webinar for Emergent Risk Council members only last Thursday. They have a public webinar this Tuesday, so that would be June 28th. And I'm going to hold off on a lot of details until I hear what they say on this next webinar. But I will provide a few of the highlights and just some of my initial thoughts. I will be talking about this more in depth, both with a guest that's coming up hopefully next week on Tuesday, as well as in another solo episode. This is pretty big and they've made a very big deal out of the announcement. So I want to give it similar amount of attention on this podcast. And I'm not going to hold back. One of the things that I really, really meant a lot to me was several people at NRF, several people that work for very large name brand companies, thanking me in their own way for being their voice. That really touched me and was very humbling. One of them said, you're, you're my voice when I can't talk publicly. It's like, yep, whatever Curry said, she's my advocate. And I'm like, huh. Uh, DJ Murphy, the editor of CardNotPresent.com, has long called me the voice of the merchant, but to have merchants say that I'm their voice means just so much more. So on that, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to be a little critical, but I'll also be fair to Visa. I understand it's they're in a challenging spot because they oversee all players within the ecosystem. So I will dive into that a little bit. First, just wanted to say I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jared Price at Incom on Tuesday. I was so grateful with how much really practical information he put into that episode. I feel like there were more takeaways in that episode than almost, if any, in-person conference session I've ever attended on gift card fraud. I really was grateful that he did that, that he shared so much. They do a terrific job. I actually was talking to another retailer at NRF and they said that they used to use income and now they use someone else and that they've really seen a huge difference in their fraud rates as well as their exception rates and or their decline rates and have been trying to lobby inside their company to make the switch back. So that really shows that Jared doesn't just talk a good game. He really does keep the merchants that they work for protected as well as all of the private label or not really private label, I guess, but card branded prepaid cards that they also process for. And hopefully he will come back in the near future to talk more about prepaid cards because I know a lot of you that do bin analysis have noticed a lot more prepaid cards in your network. And there are several reasons for that. One being that we know that that is a preferred payment method by refund fraudsters and those that use sneaker bots and other things like that, as well as underbanked and others. Some people prefer it for budgeting purposes, all those things. So we'll talk about those as well as the fact that not all prepaid cards give the cardholder the right to have chargeback rights. So that's something we're talking about too. So I'm looking forward to having him back for that. We could really only fit gift cards in the first conversation with him, but I know that that was super valuable. So before I dive into the key topics today, I am excited for you to hear a little bit about our sponsors. Cardology has its first returning sponsor, and I couldn't be more excited about that. I'm talking about Seon. I've talked about them before. If you haven't had an opportunity to learn more about Seon, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, we're going to be talking about them more over the next several weeks. Two, you can go to episode 70, where I interviewed co-founders Tamash and Benz to learn about their story, why they thought that the world needed another fraud product or products because they have a couple options. Uh, you can also go to their website at seon.io. 
Before I provide a little bit of a recap on the NRF Protect event, I thought I'd give a little bit of background about why I was there. This was the first NRF Protect event that I have been to in person. I did virtually speak at their event last year. I don't know if time is a construct, but I know that Diana Gajic Physic at JD Sports and I did a presentation on refund fraud last year virtually for NRF Protect. And one of the people that watched it was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And that was how she and I and also Christina Giordano, who was at Under Armour at the time, were, oh, Christina was on that panel with us as well, were able to be included in that story. So I had presented virtually, but not in person. So I wasn't really sure what to expect. It is primarily an event focused on retail loss prevention professionals. There were a lot of, I mean, the expo floor was just unreal with how big it was and how much money was invested in that for just a day and a half on the expo floor. But it was full of everything from security cameras for inside store to companies that sell security tags, inventory control. There was a canine dog presentation, as I mentioned before. Lots of interesting technology that just in a different world. And I know we have a few people like Gary Novello and John Mattis who have been on Fraudology before who started out on the in-person loss prevention side and transitioned to online. So it's not a huge leap, but it is a very different world. A couple of years ago, cardnotpresent.com, who has always had the CMP Summit for, I guess not always, but for about the last eight or nine years, they decided to do a partnership where CMP had sessions at NRF Protect. There ended up only being room for five sessions on the agenda. So that was a challenge, both to get speakers as well as to have more people attend from our community. But we had some great, really great people who volunteered to speak. I got to work with CNP on the content for those sessions, as well as selecting speakers. Because this was on the website already, I'm just going to name first names and company of the people who came to speak about online fraud at NRF because I very much appreciate them. That includes John at Etsy, Keith at Cabela's, Holly at Ticketmaster, Nate at The Gap, and then Doug at Bissell and Jesse at Rocket Miles and Booking were absolutely supposed to be there, but both had family reasons why they couldn't be last minute. So I still very much appreciate their willingness to go. It was a conference at the end of June in Cleveland, so that was a challenge. But overall, I'm really glad that I went. We're probably maybe 15 to 20 leaders in online fraud prevention. I mean, really that focus just on that. Several of them I knew, a couple I didn't, but now I do, definitely for very big retail names. And I got to go to dinner with a lot of them on one of the nights, and that was really fun. It was hosted by a certified. That was good to be able to talk with them in a different environment and just get to catch up because a lot of them were also at another conference I was at earlier this year, the MRC, but just didn't have time to connect with them. So that was really fun. And I got to talk to a leader of a retailer who has two rock star humans on their team who joined my retailer call. And he made a point to introduce himself as I was walking to my hotel after dinner and really appreciated them being a part of those calls. So that was sweet as well. As far as like session content, Keith and Nate had standing room only in their session. It was the very first one, the first morning, and they were talking about refund fraud. So we know that is a very big deal and a hot topic. It really shows the need and the importance. I will say that there was a question at the end about refund fraud in store. And so I'm not 100% sure how many people attended 
thinking that it was for those who do refund fraud in-store versus online, but it was still a very popular session. Keith, Holly, and John all talked about how COVID impacted their businesses, and they impacted it in very different ways, right? For John, two-sided marketplace at Etsy, so many more makers joined because they couldn't sell their goods in person as much, as well as just massive, massive growth on the consumer side. And then for Cabela's and Bass Pro Shop, definitely a lot of outdoor gear, a lot of sales a lot of record sales and just lots of traffic. And that also means lots of fraud. So they really have done a good job at keeping that down. All of them have. And then for Holly, it was very different. Even though she wasn't at Ticketmaster at the time, she was at Packy Olin. They do all of the tickets for NCAA and a lot of other collegiate things and things like that. And there were still a few college football games and she referenced that. But other than that, it was really quiet. So it impacted them in very different ways and they had to pivot in very different ways. And they also just talked about, you know, how much it impacted their business as well as how they're leading differently now. A couple of the takeaways that I had was just how much the fraud landscape has changed for each vertical so drastically in the last two years. New methods of first party fraud are on the rise. We know this. It's overwhelming retailers and it will, if it's not overwhelming other merchants, maybe digital goods, services, etc., it probably will. Because consumers are learning or people in this gray area who certainly don't have the nagging like conscience that I have are able to do. And then the other point that I thought was interesting was that their people management and development just and re overall retention and paying attention and being intentional about leading your team and really mentoring them and guiding them and supporting them is critical to prevent a great migration from your team and your department. And that was something that they all talked about that I thought you guys might enjoy. I also spoke about chargebacks and three myths that I hear most often. I had 30 minutes to talk about chargebacks. That was so harsh. It's <laughs> I've literally done two back-to-back four-hour trading sessions on chargebacks before and still had stuff to say. So this is a topic I know very well and I understand it for some crazy reason and I enjoy talking about it. So I guess this could be an episode in itself, but basically the top three myths I hear are that chargebacks are not just a cost of doing business. They really provide an opportunity for recovery and, and business intelligence within your company. They tell you why your customers are calling their bank to get their money back. And number two, detailed analytics can and should be used to understand the lot of people just the only reporting they have on chargebacks is what, like one lost, how many we had this month, how many were second times, how many were first times, how many were Visa, how many were MasterCard, how many were Amex. That doesn't tell you anything. Diving into the reason codes and the products that were bought and the marketing campaign that it was attached to it and the affiliate links that were responsible or brought the traffic over and the descriptions of the items or the services and all of that is where the real good details are that can really provide a lot of information for process improvement. That's really what I built my practice on for the first three quarters of it. And I still do that a little bit, but transitioning more to training and, and providing community opportunities and, and all of that a little bit more. And then the Third, if you decide to outsource chargeback management, not all vendors are created equal. The three questions that I advise people to ask are how do they define a win for billing purposes? Are they charging you a fee if you have a contingency contract? Are they charging you a fee when you get the first time win from your processor? Or are they waiting three to four weeks to determine if a second time chargeback comes in or not? It's a challenge because there's no event if you actually get to keep the money in the end because that just means the issuer doesn't send a second time chargeback. So you have to watch that. But that's the only way you know if you're getting to keep the money. 
a first time chargeback does not equal keeping the money. And so in some cases with some providers, people are paying an exorbitant amount of money to fight chargebacks that honestly, they're not winning in the end. There's a lot of other strategy things that can cost a lot of money as well if you're responding to them differently, but that's going to have to be another topic for another day. I also encourage you to ask, what's their representment strategy? Do they believe in responding to all chargebacks or strategically responding to the ones that they feel most confident that they'll win? There is a big difference, and I've talked about that in the past. Do they provide the same documents and template for all reason codes, or do they have them be separate? Because there are different types of information that are being asked. And actually, on that Visa webinar for MRC, they mentioned that. And I thought of a specific chargeback vendor that I have seen their templates and know this is what they do. On the webinar, a representative for Visa said that they've seen a lot of people not understanding compelling evidence, and especially like providing an invoice as proof that the cardholder made the purchase. And that just doesn't make sense. And I have seen that be done by a provider and actually like kind of did a bake off with my custom templates for a very large company versus their providers and mine beat them out by 33%. Like, I think it was actually like almost 34%. It was like 33.7, but whatever. And it's not, it's just, it's a different way of doing it, right? It's, it's how well do you understand the chargeback process? If you're outsourcing your chargebacks, you should be giving it to someone who really understands the process and is going to navigate it for you and not just push a bunch of noise into the ecosystem. It makes a difference. The chargeback system is subjective and that is a challenge, but it also means that there's room for improvement most of the time. And that is something that I think, especially now more than ever, while everyone is kind of looking under the couch cushion, so to speak, for money for their companies, this is one way that you can really increase value and recovery for your business. But that was it. I know I'm kind of cramming a lot in, but I just thought I'd give a few takeaways from the NRF. I'll go ahead and answer these questions from the MRC webinar just because I mentioned them in the beginning and all of that, but I want to make sure that I have a little bit of time to talk about the visa announcement. So here was the first question. And just as a reminder, these were questions that were received after the webinar that Uriya Rod from Identic and I did for MRC two weeks ago. There were so many questions we could not get to them. Also, Uriya and I spoke like for about 55 out of the 60 minutes for the webinar. So we answered one or two and then it was over. I'm sure that doesn't surprise anyone. Uri is just as passionate about all of this as I am. So we both get into the weeds, which Thankfully, a lot of you guys like. So the last remaining questions were a little bit off topic from the webinar, which is why that and for time purposes, I didn't answer them on last week's podcast. So this first one is freight forwarders tend to be the biggest issue in terms of refund fraud, utilizing multiple email accounts, etc. We are leaning towards not allowing further accommodations to those who utilize a freight forwarding address, i.e. non-receipt, damaged item, credit not processed, etc. So this is what Woody said in his typed response. That's a very reasonable policy, and you're certainly not the only one seeing that trend. There are just a couple of things I'd say about it. First, if you do make this change, it is 100% clear to your customers that that's what you've done. You can have a pop-up window that appears when a freight forwarding address is entered in at the time of transaction, for example, or send them an email post-transaction letting them know about the policy and giving them one day to cancel or any number of ways of handling it. But don't just stick it to the tiny print on your terms and conditions page, which no one reads. Because there are also good customers who use freight forwarding, and some may want legitimate refunds for some reason, and it's just not good practice to conceal changes like that and customers appreciate transparency. Second, bear in mind that this sort of change does typically require collaboration and consultation with other departments. So make sure that the other stakeholders understand the scale of the problem and why this solution makes sense. 
Use this as an opportunity to show your value to and care for your organization and its success. Great points. And just building off of both of those. The first one Uri makes is very important. It is really, really good when you have a policy change to communicate those that to your customers, either pre-transaction or post, allowing them to cancel before an item is shipped or a service is provided or a digital good is sent out. What it sounds like is this merchant is saying, if we send items to a freight forwarder, we're not going to allow them to say the item was damaged or non-receipt, things like that. That is a policy that can be made from a chargeback perspective. I'm not 100% sure how that would work. I'd have to think about that and like consult the rules. You would definitely have to be able to show that you expressed that policy to the cardholder. So not only is it good business practice to do that, to Uri's point, but it's also good from a chargeback perspective. If you put in a policy halfway through, I mean, because unfortunately to his point, if you just arbitrarily decide that you're going to do that and maybe put it in your terms and conditions, well, then you're going to get even more chargebacks, right? Because they don't know about that policy change. So it's really important to communicate that ahead of time and just say that we recognize that this address is a freight forwarder. This is our policy regarding that. We won't provide refunds based on quality of item, et cetera, because it's not going to you directly. It's going to a third party and that's out of our hands. We can't control it. I think that that is the right way to do it. And then that way you can provide that information at time of chargeback. And I believe that as long as that's your, you know, you have to prove it's a freight forwarder, et cetera. However, what I also fear with putting that policy in writing, but you absolutely need to do it but that you may have people shifting to private residential addresses, right? And reshipping schemes that we've seen for years where an unassuming consumer is offered money for the use of their address because it looks residential and it's not a freight forwarder and all they have to do is change the labels on the box and ship them off overseas. So I would worry that that would migrate that way. So that's just something to think about. And to Uri's second point, He's absolutely correct. This is something that should be run up the flagpole, so to speak, and spoken with with other teams within your business. Customer service for one, supply chain for another, legal operations. Just don't make that decision in a vacuum. There are a lot of good customers that use freight forwarders. And so I think that the other piece that Willie was kind of hinting to is provide the data to your company, right? So look at all of the transactions that have been sent to freight forwarders. How many of those are being requested for refunds or it looks like refund fraud or chargebacks are being issued? If you go to your company and say 10% of everything we send to a freight forwarder is coming back, they might go, eh, we don't care because the 90% is paying our bills. If you go to them and say, hey, 70% of everything that's going to a freight forwarder is now we're losing the product and we're losing the money, whether it's through refund fraud or chargebacks. Totally different conversation. Using that data to tell the story is 100% the way to really explain and elaborate. You just really provide good information to your company. That's something I've learned as a consultant is critically important. Let the data tell the story. And then you can add some context and you're advising. But that way you're not just... It doesn't seem like I just woke up today and decided that I want to stop this because all they hear is you're going to stop sales. They hear that you're going to stop orders or that you're going to make it more difficult for a subset of customers. And in a lot of other departments, in their mind, every one of your customers is a great customer that pays money and has a large lifetime value. You and I know that's not true. The percentage of orders that we look at is not the case, but that's who you're talking to, right? So just keep that in mind. You have to prove otherwise before making any kind of change, especially right now 
with leaders and, and tech companies being concerned about sales and customer acquisition and all of that. And then the last question is, as a fraud fighter for a BNPL, so buy now, pay later, fintech that works with a number of merchants, I feel that we get a disproportionate number of chargebacks because customers do not expect to see our name on their billing statement. I've considered asking our payment processor for more dynamic mids that could incorporate merchant ID numbers, that could incorporate the name of the merchant where the goods actually came from. Have you heard of similar solutions in the past? 100%. Or you just said, Carice, I'll leave this one to you. There is no one I can think of in the world better to answer it. Very sweet. No pressure. So as far as that goes, it is absolutely possible. Work with your payment processor. It depends on the structure of your merchant account. This is where my payment processing background comes in so handy. But if you are categorized as a payfac, like a payment facilitator, or there's a few other MCC codes, some merchant category codes that can be used, where how we used to refer to it was a parent and child mid relationship. I don't think that's like industry standard anymore. But essentially what that meant was there was an overarching umbrella mid and that was the, the main company, the merchant of record. And then underneath that, you could have what we call child mids, where it would be like BNPL company dash the merchant name for each one. And I think that's the best practice for a lot of reasons, not just chargebacks, but that's a good one. Just also to keep the money straight and to keep the accounting straight. That surprises me that that's not set up yet. But you know, your merchant processor should have that. If they don't, there are other processors that do. I do know that there are some payfac providers, some payment processors that I don't really know how to explain them, but the ones that like often have a flat fee that are easy to connect with online, they may not have that structure, but other traditional acquirers and payment processors should. Another thing, and this is kind of counterintuitive to what I'm about to talk about, but in this case, actually, before I go into that, I would make sure have you dove into the data of a sample set of the chargebacks to actually identify that that's the case. Because I do know with buy now, pay later, there is a significant amount of new account fraud that doesn't get caught at the beginning. Depending on the BNPL provider, some of them have accepted this fate more than others. Others still think that this is a first party fraud problem and it's a credit problem. I talked about that on a previous episode about BNPL. I won't get into it too much, but this is where diving into the data, like I just mentioned for chargebacks, going to the root cause analysis, looking at the reason codes. Is it a lot of does not recognize or is it all fraud? Okay, now take a level down. Look at the chargeback statements. If your provider gives you the cardholder statements within your chargeback documentation, read those. Those are a gift. If not, another possibility is you could have an analyst on your team call some of those people that have issued chargebacks and ask them why in a very non-confrontational way. Hey, we received a chargeback for this transaction. Would be really curious to understand, hey, did you know that this was for this company? We're trying to improve our processes and would like to understand why you issued this chargeback. Something like that. That is totally acceptable and fine. It's really good. In fact, a lot of times people will hear, oh, I didn't know I issued a chargeback. I just asked my bank where this charge was from. The only action that the call center employee can take is issuing a chargeback and then Eventually, the cardholder will get the receipt probably and then more information. So that can be very valuable. I would make sure that that's the issue first. I would want to really know by the data that that's the issue. And if it is, then pursue. And it may be a good idea to pursue those mids anyway, the kind of sub-merchants, so to speak. But for this particular cause, that's what I would check first. 
And if it's name recognition, like I said, you can get the submids and other names for, I, I don't know. I don't remember all the names for like a DBA for a sub merchant, but you might need a different MCC, et cetera. I'm just kind of making sure I read what I put down, what I notated already. But the other thing I would say, and this is the part that's going to be counterintuitive to what I'm about to talk about. But in this case, if the problem really is cardholders not recognizing and you either aren't able to change the mids to be sub merchants and underneath you and all of that, or if you want to really double down on this and you need to reduce them for ratios and other reasons, the other thing you can do is enroll in Visa's Order Insight and MasterCard has something similar. It's an API where if cardholder calls the bank and says, I don't recognize this purchase. I don't know this BNPL company. They can trigger an API call to your company. You've already preset what fields. There's like a hundred fields you can choose from. You can already preset the fields that go back to the issuing bank while the cardholder's on the phone. And then the call center employee reads it or can email it to them and will say, well, it was actually for this merchant and it looks like you purchased this. And then you agreed to four payments of that. And this is the address and this is the phone number and this is the email, et cetera. And they can then oftentimes that will turn into, oh, okay, yep, I remember. And that's the end of the call and no chargeback is issued. This program I have mixed feelings about, but I think for this type of thing, if the problem really is name recognition, that is a good use case for it. There are some downsides. I will talk about them in just a minute, but hopefully that answers both of those questions from the MRC webinar. I hope that the virgins who asked are listening today. If you are, please let me know. I'd love to know. I actually have no idea who asked these questions. I was just given the questions. So I hope that you listened. Otherwise, I would reach out and say, hey, you might want to listen to this episode. But hopefully that was helpful to everyone. Just a little bit of information. Sometimes it's helpful, even if it doesn't apply to your company, just to go, huh, hadn't thought of that before, but that's good to know and file it away. <laughs> okay, now the moment everyone's been waiting for. <laughs> Carice talking about visa chargeback rule changes. Hopefully you don't fall asleep. I'm kidding. So just a little bit of background again. There was kind of a big buzz on LinkedIn and in emails and stuff saying Visa has an announcement and we're making an announcement that we're going to make an announcement on these two webinars. It's kind of the first time they've done that. I mean, when I worked at the Merchant Risk Council, I did host a webinar for the very first compelling evidence changes, but that was after they'd been announced already. Usually and historically, Visa just sends out bulletins to their acquirers and hopes that it trickles down to the merchant eventually. But I think they've learned that some acquirers are better at that communication than others, and they're trying to have relationships direct with merchants, which I have some theories on, but that's not important for today. So anyway, I have seen the first webinar of the rule changes, the one they did for MRC members. Thank you to the person who helped me see that. I'm recording this on Monday the 27th and their public webinar is tomorrow on the 28th. So I want to wait to see what they say on the second webinar to see if they change some of the ways that they said some things. So I'll have more to say in the next coming weeks on this topic for sure. I also am going to have a really awesome guest who also geeks out on chargebacks with me hopefully this next Tuesday. We've planned it for this Wednesday. So hope I'm telegraphing that that it's going to happen on Tuesday. And we'll be talking a little bit about this and just how it relates with our philosophy and chargebacks and our experiences, etc. And then I will also do a deep dive into the rules again, either next Thursday or the Thursday after. I want to say that I do think that any progress towards fairness for merchants on the subject of first party fraud and misuse chargebacks is a really good thing. Personally, I have my list of things I would love to see them do, one of which being going back to requiring a fraud affidavit for fraud-coded chargebacks for those 10.4 charge that used to be 37 and 52, whatever. Anyway, nobody cares about 
the numbers of the chargeback reason codes. I am that nerdy, but that's not looking like it's in the cards. I've also been asking for the last 10 years of my career, anytime I get a chance to have issuer accountability on reason codes, but that it's fine. Like I understand. I actually do have empathy for the people on the risk team at Visa because they have to balance the company's priorities. The company oversees all of the players in the ecosystem. And there are a lot of them. There are millions of cardholders. There are hundreds, if not thousands of issuers. There are hundreds of acquirers. And then underneath that, thousands of ISOs, like independent sales organizations that process payments under the acquirers. And then there are thousands of merchants. Everyone has competing interests. Everyone has stuff. I, I get it. I did appreciate that they acknowledged in the first few slides that they have definitely seen first party chargebacks go up significantly. They recognize it's a problem. That's a really good start. I am critical or apprehensive to say that their announcements are game changing. I think that it may not have been in, I don't know. I don't want to critique the strategy, but I just, I think there was a little bit of like anticlimactic with the people I've talked to so far that made a point to see the webinar live. So there are two things that come out of this that I think are really positive. The first one being that they are allowing more compelling evidence for merchants and they are acquirers to call out the proof better in response documents. Like I said, they've noticed and I really think a lot of the volume is due to a few chargeback providers that just kind of provide the same response to every single chargeback, throw as much as they can up against the wall and seize what sticks. And that kind of mucks up the whole system. So they're trying to change that and have accountability as well as make it better for the issuers to see. Because a lot of times if you kind of put compelling evidence somewhere in a document on a third page and you expect the issuer to find it, they've got SLAs, they've got to move fast, they got to review it, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, like it is in my templates, it's always like top of top of the page after the cover letter, et cetera. Like this is compelling. We're submitting this as compelling evidence. That's what they're asking acquirers to do next. So acquirers will have to provide photographic evidence of the compelling evidence. So screenshots of the various components of compelling evidence. And I will go into those details on a future episode of like what all those are. But I think that's really good for increasing win rates as well as kind of overseeing this process looking at where they can kind of clean it up a little bit. Additionally, and I think this is probably the biggest win for merchants, they will be, and sorry, I should have said this before, all of these rule changes don't go into effect until April 15th of 2023. So usually they don't even announce it till October. So this is kind of a new thing. We have almost a year at this point, 10 months or so to think about it, prepare for it, etc. So unfortunately for any subscription and recurring merchants, this does not go into effect right away, but it's something to look forward to and something to communicate to your company that this should hopefully greatly reduce your chargebacks with the reason code of canceled recurring transaction. So they pointed out that the original purpose of that chargeback code was for customers who had called or emailed or tried and done everything they could themselves with the merchant to cancel their subscription. However, they recognize that this has kind of become people's default way to cancel, right? If you have a subscription with a streaming service, instead of going into your account and canceling it, you can just go on your bank's website and say, eh, I dispute these transactions, I want to cancel it. Or you can have call your bank and say, I want to cancel these transactions. So that is really good. I can see, I mean, I've worked with several recurring merchants and that reason code is a pain, not only because the customer never told you that they didn't want you to charge them again. So that's not fair, but also because for that specific reason code, they can charge back up to three months. So it's not just one chargeback, right? It's three transactions. It's three individual chargebacks. 
So I'm really encouraged that they are putting some onus on the issuer. They're requiring issuers to provide more information for that chargeback whenever the reason code is canceled recurring for subscription merchants. They're going to require them to fill out a form that says something to the effect of, and this is just off the top of my head, I'm not even looking at my notes from that webinar. So these are just like light updates. When did you cancel with the merchant? How did you cancel? When was the last charge, et cetera? All of that to try to, and really, if the response is, oh, I never contacted that merchant, the issuer is required by this rule to instruct them to go cancel with the merchant. Now, if you cancel with the merchant and then your card is charged, you can absolutely file this canceled recurring reason code. So I really, that I'm going to celebrate all day long. I'm really happy for recurring merchants. I think that's good. I also, like I said, I can tell that the team that worked on this is really trying to make some steps and balancing a lot of competing motives and competing interests within the ecosystem. But there's a super high bar for chargeback immunity on first-party chargebacks. They are starting to do that. So there is one way that a merchant can actually win a first-party chargeback if they prove certain things. The bar is very high and they recognize that. But it just makes me wonder, like, gosh, if this is our starting point, how long is it going to take to get to something that's of significant change? But I can tell they were very thoughtful about it. They worked with the Merchant Issuer Council through the Merchant Risk Council. I can tell that that was worked on. I do know that there were some merchants that were happier about some of these changes than others, but I just know that from hearsay. So anyway, the bar that you have to meet in order to like, if you get a fraud chargeback and so fraud reason code chargeback, the only way that you can 100% win is you have to prove that there were two previous purchases within 120 days on that same card with at least an IP or device ID, the same one, right? So if there were three charges, within four months on this card and the first two charges were never disputed and the third one was and the same IP address or device was used on all three transactions and there were additional what's the, oh common identifier like other identifiers right like email phone address etc if there's at least one of those and the IP or the device are the same on those three transactions that's going to help you win the chargeback. Obviously, you can still use compelling evidence and argue your case, but that is the way that like absolutely you'll get somewhat immunity on that chargeback. It doesn't come off of your ratio. It doesn't come off of the count. And from previous episodes, that's something that merchants have been talking about quite a bit is as friendly fraud continues to grow, maybe we shouldn't be counted for our ratio if we're winning chargebacks because that probably means that those chargebacks were illegitimate in the first place. I was really hopeful that that's what this announcement was going to be like reading between the lines in the vague announcement. Maybe I just got my hopes up too much. I did hear or learn from someone at NRF who is pretty synced into all of that, that that wasn't going to be the case. So I was already a little bit prepared, but still I was really hopeful that it was going to be if a merchant wins a chargeback, that means that the chargeback was illegitimate or shouldn't have been filed in the first place. And we're going to deduct that from the ratio. The ratio, of course, is 0.9% for Visa, 1% for MasterCard. I've talked about the math before on how to get that, but that was my hope. <laughs> but that's not where we were. And so maybe, in all honesty, like maybe I was a little more like disappointed because of that. But this is the thing that I am struggling with the most, and I will probably talk about more in the future. I received the most questions about it as well. So on that webinar, Visa talked a fair amount about their Order Insight product. I just mentioned it a second ago as advice to this 
merchant, right? In some cases, I think it's a really great tool, but it's an, so it's an API tool for chargeback deflection. They mentioned it was a product that they acquired from their purchase of Verify, but they never disclosed that there's a fee and it can be kind of significant to merchants to participate. So I had a lot of people ask me, hey, does Order Insight cost anything? Is it free? And I will say several years ago, I want to say it was like 2008, 1718 when they first announced VNPI. That was what Order Insight is now kind of taking over. I cannot remember what VNPI stands for for the life of me right now, so I'm sorry. But when they announced it, it was very much implied that it was going to be free, right? Okay, we understand that merchants are, for lack of better term, like getting screwed by this because issuers are issuing chargebacks for whatever because it is great for their customer experience and good for their relationship. There needs to be some kind of arbiter of like, hey, this is fair. This isn't fair. Like there's no middle part, really. I mean, there's time frames and stuff with the Visa online resolution that came up, which was great, but like doesn't, that still doesn't take many of them away. So that was the hope. However, when Verify started offering it, it's there's a deflection price. So just again, to just kind of back up, there's these are different than alerts. So there are a lot of companies that have been paying for alerts. They've been paying a flat fee. It can really vary all the way up to like $40, $50 per alert. It can also go down quite a bit depending on the size of the merchant, their order value, etc. Those come after a cardholder has issued a chargeback you're given a notice ahead of time. And the only action you can do is refund that transaction. If you, as long as you refund it within that window before it gets to your merchant processor, that chargeback doesn't count towards your account. I use those strategically with clients. I don't actually think that they're a best practice for many companies like all the time year round, but it really has to do with how much your orders are, right? If your order value is $500 and your ratio is high and you're about to get charged fees and fines on top of chargeback fees and other things, it might make sense to invest $30, $40 on alerts each one and refund them just so you can get that count lower and it's worth it for the money wise. You aren't getting your product back. You aren't getting your money back. It's essentially a chargeback. Just it happened before it hit your processor. So therefore it doesn't count. This is different than that. This is an API. When the cardholder calls, oftentimes it's, I don't know what I purchased there. I don't know who this company is, et cetera. And it's an API call that goes out in real time. It returns back all of the fields that you've already pre-selected for this program, the item, the different information. And the thought is the cardholder goes, oh yeah, I remember that. Or, oh, my kid probably bought that. Okay, whatever. So the other alerts have a flat fee, right? In this product, they have a chargeback deflection fee. Oftentimes that fee assessed is around 30% of the total transaction amount. So if you had a $100 transaction that somebody called their bank about and their bank pinged your system through their API and got the order information and that customer was like, oh yeah, that's right. My sister bought that or that was a present for so-and-so. I just didn't recognize the company, whatever that is. They've now count that as a chargeback deflection and they'll take $30 or whatever that percentage is. I do know it's a sliding scale, but the most common percentage I've heard is 30%. That is significantly really, really bad and like pretty much impossible for any company that has a really small profit margin. Think about like two-sided marketplaces, any kind of events or travel company that just gets a, some fees, right? Like at least when I worked at the online travel agency, and I think this has changed a little bit, but if someone booked an, an airfare on our website, we only got $15 for that flight, no matter how much that flight was. But if there was a chargeback, we were responsible for the full amount. So if you're like, okay, this was a 
$3,000 flight. And again, I don't know if that's the way the arrangement is with online travel agencies now. It's been 12 years. A lot has changed. But just using that as an example, someone books a $2,000 flight. The merchant only got $15 for it. They enroll in this program and they pay a 30% deflection fee. That's like about $600. Where is that coming out of, right? Now you might say the chargeback would be worse. It would be the full amount. Yes, absolutely. But in those structures, when it's a full amount, maybe not on the travel side, but on like event ticketing or others that have sub merchants, like I actually talked about for that BNPL, they often will charge their merchant or their seller on their marketplace, the total amount for the chargeback. It's much harder to say, hey, we deflected this chargeback for you, so we're going to deduct 30%. Like, I don't think that really, that's work. That's something that would make sense with all of the programming that would be necessary and engineering and changes in language and verbiage to the contract. I just don't see that happening. So I do think it's a decent solution, but it just, it, it's not for everyone. Now, if you're a luxury goods company and your average order is $1,000, you'd much rather pay that 30% than have the chargeback plus the chargeback fee. Absolutely. It just, it doesn't work for everyone. My biggest concern is that there may be a conflict of interest with Visa owning and charging for this product. I'm not going to go into too much. I really don't want to make enemies that this is just something I'm going to put out there. I, especially because so many of you guys thank me for being your voice. Like, I feel like I kind of have to, but this is kind of my, my take on this. And I've always had concerns since the two card brands purchased the companies that provide alerts. It feels a little bit like a dam breaking and causing a flood and the company that owns the dam handing out life jackets, right? And being like, hey, aren't you glad? Oh, but we also need to charge you for the life jacket. That, I, I struggle with that. I'm not trying to be critical of Visa. I'm just trying to bring this up as an issue. There was a lot of excitement about this program on the webinar that I listened to. Like I said, I was a little bit concerned that they did not say that there was a price, that this was not free from Visa. I had at least like five or six people contact me that day asking me, is order insight free? Is this a charge? Because we, if it's free, we'd love to use it. But if it charges, we need to understand that and weigh out our options. The other challenge is that they are able to provide an exemption from your chargeback ratio for companies that are enrolled in that order insight. So when you use order insight on that transaction, and if it becomes a chargeback, then you don't get, my understanding is that you don't get a chargeback ratio fee for that. I don't know exactly, actually. Now I need to double check that one because it doesn't totally make sense. But they did say that they have chargeback ratio, like you don't, it doesn't hit your chargeback ratio if you use order insight. Now, maybe they just meant if you deflect the chargeback, there won't be a chargeback. Okay. But if they're saying that a chargeback comes back in after somebody did order insight, that is a challenge, right? Because they're the ones who've created this infrastructure. And if the only way to prevent a chargeback from ending your ratio is enrolling in and paying the card brand for this product, I have reservations. Yeah. So, I mean, basically I'm still forming a formal response and I owe you a lot more detailed overview. At least I feel like I do. I very much encourage you to look up the recording of the webinar from Visa. I'm sure it will be public. Very much encourage you to look up the documentation and read it. This is all my translation of it from watching the webinar and reading the slides and, and the documentation that they provided in the webinar. I do think, like I said, some of these are really good and positive changes and good updates. But in some cases, and especially this last one, I just, I have complicated feelings about it. I feel like if it was a free service, I would think, okay, that's kind of trying to right the ship, right? Like right the wrong a little bit to try to even the playing field, so to speak. 
But because it not only has a fee, but a percentage fee, and that that fee no longer goes to an, a private independent company, it goes to the card brands. It just, I don't know. I'd be really curious. I want to know what you think. And I am prepared for messages from Visa as well. And I hope that you guys know that I'm trying to be as fair to you while also still just being a merchant at heart. And when you're in fraud and you're a merchant for this long, you learn to be skeptical. You learn to kind of question things and go, is this too good to be true? Or where am I getting screwed, so to speak? And so that's that's the lens I'm looking at it from. I actually welcome someone. If someone would like to come from Visa and explain this and, and have a really open, honest conversation about these rule changes, I would love that. We could go through the questions and all of that before. So I'm just throwing that out there that you're welcome to come on Fraudology and we can talk about this. I would obviously want you to be able to answer openly and not just with canned responses, but you're very welcome. It would be a great conversation to have. And I would love to share some of my ideas on, and I have given this a lot of thought on previous projects, as well as just because my brain works like that on some ways that could actually maybe help without taking off other stakeholders within the ecosystem. So anyway, that's where I'm leaving it. If you have a contact at Visa, feel free to invite them to suggest that they contact me. I want to continue to talk about this. I know this is something that is very important and needs to be communicated out to the industry. So I do hope that on that sense, me covering it is really helpful with that because I do have several thousand listeners in this industry. And I hope that you guys all make the right decisions for your business. I just know there's a lot of considerations that if people haven't been a merchant before, they just may not think about. And that's why I'm here, question mark. <laughs> All right, guys, I went way over where I thought I was going to be. I was trying to hit for 40 minutes, but thankfully my editor is really good at taking out all my ums and all of that. So it will be compressed a little bit. But with that, I am looking forward to you hearing the episode on Tuesday uh, with a chargeback expert. I think it'll be really good. And then he's going to come back the next week and talk about iGaming. He worked for one of the largest gambling sites in the U.S. at least for several years and has a lot of really interesting insights that I know you'll all really enjoy. So with that, I look forward to speaking with you more next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.